Part One, Chapter Eight of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. Slippers. Slippers. John Broadbanks was telling me came pretty freely to the manse during the three years that preceded his marriage when the ladies of silverstream wished to show their lonely young minister some mark of their appreciation or affection or compassion it usually took the form of slippers it is only another instance of that spiritual insight that is one of the principal ingredients in feminine sagacity they felt perhaps in that subconscious or semi-conscious way peculiar to the gentle sex that there is a subtle but inevitable relationship between the use a man makes of his ministry and the use he makes of his slippers i will not go so far as to say that the grace in a man's soul may be measured by the rapidity with which he wears out a pair of slippers but if anybody else cares to make that daring assertion i shall not go out of my way to challenge it whatever a young wife may forget let her never forget to have the good man's slippers on the fender awaiting his return if only she can cultivate in him the love of slippers he will develop into a husband of the finest stamp the man who is always buying new boots yet whose slippers last indefinitely must be regarded with suspicion and distrust his soul is not quite healthy slippery people are an abomination but slippered people are invariably lovable folk a man who wears out plenty of slippers must have an exquisitely tranquil soul slippers are such restful things they look restful they feel restful they radiate restfulness among all beholders i do not know what was in the apostle's mind when he spoke of the feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace but i know that there is nothing that a man can wear on his feet so expressive of peace as a pair of comfortable slippers such a man appears to be on the best of terms with all men in general and with himself in particular he is the personification of composure benevolence and good will a man would only wear slippers in a place that he loves he would only wear them in the company of people who are dear to him he would only read under such conditions a book in which his soul delights in the correspondence of sir arthur helps there appears a letter written to sir arthur by lord morley the famous author has sent the great statesman one of his books and lord morley is acknowledging the gift this very night he says i shall put on my slippers and dip joyfully into it and go to bed full of mellow wisdom and good will which is better than anything else i hold slippers to be a compliment to an author because who in this easeful fashion would read disagreeable letters or bad books who indeed why i verily believe that all the best books were written in slippers it may be fancy but when i draw my chair up to the fire and put on my slippers and take up some friendly volume that soon fills me with a glow of contentment and delight i think i can see the pattern of the author's slippers they are never very bright or showy or new but they are cosy and faded and loose and just enough the worse for wear to suggest the constancy of fond familiarity and old friendship 
give me the man who can look and feel perfectly at home in such a pair of slippers the autocrat of the breakfast table divided men into two classes there are he said men of the cat class and there are men of the squirrel class a squirrel is for a while an entertaining companion it is full of life overflowing with exuberance and vitality it is nimble brisk and sprightly leaping over everything and climbing everywhere it is full of surprises and astonishes you every second by its agility and its curious antics but it soon tires you and you are glad to see it restored to its revolving cage similarly there are people with nimble and restless minds they are lively jerky and smart their thoughts do not run in the natural order of sequence they say bright things on all possible subjects but their zigzags rack you to death after a jolting half-hour with one of these jerky companions talking with a dull friend affords great relief it is like taking the cat in your lap after holding the squirrel just look at the cat lying purring pleasantly on the hearth-rug what could be more restful and look at the squirrel already whirling its revolving cage what could be more restless cats and squirrels to pass from the squirrel people to the cat people is the autocrat declares like putting a soft ground glass shade over a lamp whose naked glare has tortured our tired eyes beyond endurance now oddly enough whilst dr oliver wendell holmes was writing the autocrat on one side of the atlantic walter badgett was penning his famous essays on the other and in one of the cleverest of those delightful papers badgett establishes a contrast between stupid people and brilliant people and surprising as it may seem he expresses a decided preference for the former and argues with resistless force that the world owes incalculably more to people who are stupid than to people who are smart but we are getting a long way from home we set out to talk not about squirrels nor about stupidity but about slippers yet we are not so far astray as a casual observer might suppose for who are the autocrats cat people but the people who can feel perfectly at home in slippers and who are his squirrel people but the people who always wear boots and one has only to read badgett's essay a second time in order to see that the contrast at the back of his mind is really the contrast between the people who dearly love a pair of slippers and the people who wearing out cartloads of boots and shoes yet make a pair of slippers last them half a lifetime i refer just now to silverstream i think i have already said that i was often a guest at john broadbank's manse it was a pleasant drive from mosquiel and we saw a good deal of each other in those days but i remember well a question that one or other of the children invariably asked at tea-time is this a slipper evening somebody would cry john's wife saw that i was puzzled when i heard the question for the first time so she hastened to my enlightenment they call it a slipper evening she explained when john has not to go out if he has a meeting they call it a boot evening i soon discovered which they liked best oh it's a boot evening to-night don he would say as he rose from the table and went off to prepare for the pending engagement 
and every face instantly clouded. But when he announced that it was a slipper evening, there were smiles and prancings and clapping of hands. For a slipper evening meant the telling of tales to the little ones and the reading aloud to Myrtle and Jack and Mother after the babies were in bed. I remember one afternoon strolling across the fields behind the manse with John. It was in the early autumn. We sat down in a gap in the gorse hedge and watched the rabbits popping in and out among the tussocks. That's a great idea of your youngsters, I said, that distinction between boot evening and slipper evening. Yes, he replied with a laugh, and it would astonish you to know the number of books that we get through. Sometimes, even on boot nights, I manage to read to them for ten minutes or so before saddling Brownie. On slipper nights, I read for half an hour, or, if the story is exciting, perhaps a little more. We began with Pilgrim's Progress. Then we took Robinson Crusoe, the Swiss family Robinson, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Captain Cook's Voyages, Mungo Park's Travels, and a few other books of the same kind. During the last year or two, we have stuck pretty closely to fiction. It has been great fun renewing my own acquaintance with Dickens and Scott in the company of the youngsters and enjoying their excitement on hearing these great stories for the first time. He went on to speak of the peals of laughter and glitter of tears that greeted some of the well-known passages in these familiar books. Upon my word, he broke out again, it's about the most economical way of being jolly that has ever been invented. About this time last year, I had to go into town one day to attend a committee meeting, and, looking in at the Chaucer's Head book room, I picked up a very decent copy of Pickwick Papers for a shilling. I brought it home, and as soon as Myrtle saw the pictures, she made me promise to read it. Night after night, as soon as the tea things were washed up and put away, we all drew our chairs to the fire, and I read one or two or sometimes three chapters of Mr. Pickwick's adventures. How we laughed and cried together. We quite pitied the people who, whilst we read, were rushing hither and thither in search of amusement. Here were six of us, spending thirty or more evenings, crowded with profit and amusement in return for the modest outlay of one single shilling. And John laughed again, so loudly this time, that a pair of rabbits that had been playing unsuspectingly a hundred yards away dashed instantly to cover. Before so very long, he added reflectively and with a note of sadness in his voice, before so very long, the old nest will have to be broken up and all my fledglings will have flown. But I really believe that, long after they have forgotten everything else, they will remember the slipper nights that we spent by the fire together. And so do I. And this only confirms me in my conviction that the world's best work is done in slippers. When a man takes off his boots and puts on his slippers, he gives you the impression that his work, for the time being, at any rate, is over. But that is only the trickery of appearances. As a matter of fact, when a man takes off his boots and puts on his slippers, his best work is just beginning. John Broadbanks has done a magnificent work at Silverstream but I doubt if he has done anything finer than the work he did on his slipper evenings by his own fireside. History is often made in slippers. Take the case of Sir Joseph Banks. 
the work that he did in slippers is one of the most extraordinary and unparalleled achievements in the story of the empire joseph banks accompanied captain cook as naturalist on those wonderful and epic-making voyages that changed the face of the world but the work even of the greatest navigators must in the nature of things be tantalizingly superficial cook skirted the coasts of immense continents but had no time to explore them banks stood on the deck of the endeavour and saw the shores of those vast but unknown lands pass like a panorama along the horizon and he vowed that he would dedicate his energies to the work of inspiring young men with a passion for exploration and most amazingly did he succeed in his self-imposed task in the days of his retirement living in his quiet english home he coaxed young men to his fireside and sitting there in his slippers he told them of the vision of unknown continents that haunted him sleeping and waking many of them went back to their homes and offices smiling superciliously at the old man's enthusiasm but on the minds of three of his listeners his story had the desired effect he contrived to fire the fancy one after the other of three young men who as a result of those fireside conversations wrote their names and letters indelible upon the world's broad scroll of fame these three men were mungo park lachlan macquarie and john franklin mungo park became under sir joseph's influence the pioneer of african exploration he began the work that was afterwards completed by burton speke livingstone stanley and an army of dauntless and devoted pathfinders lachlan macquarie also under sir joseph's influence opened the gates of australia and converted a microscopic and insignificant settlement into a huge continental dominion i would beg of you said sir joseph banks to colonel macquarie on the eve of his sailing for australia i would beg of you to go out with a strong resolve to open up the country and to discover and develop its resources macquarie came and setting himself to the task that sir joseph had committed to his trust the blue mountains were soon crossed and the incalculable possibilities of the continent revealed it was sir joseph banks too who inspired franklin with the idea of opening up the silent seas of the far north in eighteen eighteen he being then seventy-five years of age pleaded with the young naval officer to devote his life to the discovery of the northwest passage the nation now being at peace he pleaded some of the most daring and gallant young officers men who had fought with nelson at copenhagen and trafalgar might now be commissioned to search for the long-dreamed-of waterway the nation lent an ear to the old man's plea young franklin caught the contagion of the veteran zeal and as a result and after thirty years of tireless search the northwest passage was discovered and sealed by the tragic and pathetic sacrifice of its discoverers whenever i catch the thrill of african exploration whenever i feel a glow of admiration as i contemplate the dauntless courage of our australian pathfinders whenever i read afresh that stirring record of suffering and adventure in the icy polar seas i let my mind go one step farther back and i conjure up the image of a stately old gentleman sitting with slippered feet by a comfortable english fireside more often than we sometimes think history is made in slippers 
Thirty or forty years ago, the friends of Dr. Alexander Preston issued, as a memorial volume and for private circulation, a number of autobiographical notes found in the good man's desk after his death. In the second chapter, perhaps the most fascinating in the book, Dr. Preston tells how he found his way to faith and to the ministry. I owe my soul, he says, to no preacher or teacher. I was born in the tiny village of Cudford Brook, and down a little lane that ran from the village green to the brook itself there stood a pretty old cottage. In the summertime the porch was a tangle of roses. The door, even in winter, always stood open, and nobody who knew old Duncan, as we called him, ever thought of knocking. We walked right in, and he was always pleased. He sat by his fire, a little old gentleman in slippers, and even as a small boy I reveled in his company. He was interested in all my games and my lessons, and he always knew what I ought to do. If I was puzzled or disappointed, I always went and told old Duncan. He seemed to understand boys, and he used at times to speak to me about the kingdom of heaven, and somehow he made it wonderfully attractive. He always took it for granted that I should love his Savior, and his Bible, and his church, and all the things that were so dear to him. When you are a minister of the word, Sandy, he would say, and he made me feel that that was part of the divine program, and surely enough, it has all come to pass exactly as he said. And later on, Preston again refers to old Duncan. The red carpet slippers, he says, seemed a part of him, and when he died, nobody had the heart to burn them, so they put them where they had always been, and in his slippers he was buried. A little old gentleman in slippers. We are all moving towards the sovereignty of the slippers. Life itself is a march towards slippers. Happily, they who have caught the restful spirit of the slippers, to whom the slippers represent not an imprisonment, but, as in the case of Joseph Banks and old Duncan, the opportunity for a radiant sunset ministry. End of Part 1, Chapter 8